Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Look at verse 18 and review a little bit of what we did last time I was able to be with you. Paul says in Philippians 3.18, 4. Well, that's not the way to start a message. With 4, you have to explain what it's about. Well, he says in conclusion of previous commands, follow my example of spiritual growth. Follow in the example that I've given you of growing spiritually. And um, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So copy me is what he's saying. Imitate me. It's literal in verse 17. Remember the, the idea of I'm not there yet, but I'm stretching forward to what I've already attained in terms of my position in Christ. I'm reaching forward to arrive with a full, a full portfolio of spirit empowered Christian work at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the pressing on. <clears throat> That is the pressing on he's describing. And he says, many walk who, as I told you before, often before, but now I'm also telling you weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Who is an enemy of the cross of Christ? Don't raise your hand. But I want you to think about this. Who wants to be one? Right? Who wants to be an enemy of the cross? Opposed to the message of the cross. Let's describe these enemies of the cross of Christ that has Paul weeping. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their stomach. Whose glory is in their shame. Four things. Whose End is destruction, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is in their shame. What does it mean for their God to be their stomach? That's the clearest one of these descriptions. The clearest one of these descriptions is their God is their stomach. And it means that their feelings lead their lives. This is why people are so easily deceived. Because in communications... You can appeal to people's emotions, their feelings, and move them to make choices that may go against their principles or God's principles. And we don't feel like principle. We feel like whatever our emotions are driving. This is what he's talking about. Their God is their stomach. What do you mean? How is that their emotions? Because it means their appetites. Their stomach is saying, hey, it's time to eat. You know, you don't necessarily eat when you're not hungry but you do necessarily eat when you are I mean if you can why do we eat maybe you skip a meal and you're like I'm not feeling it but eventually you will and eventually that stomach is going to say now and if you can you'll get a hold of some saltines and if you waited long enough it's the best thing you've ever tasted it's your appetite it's a good thing appetites are fine but they're not our god they don't call the shots. They don't tell us what is right and wrong. What I, well, what I feel is right. That's what your God is, your stomach. 
when your feelings determine what's right and wrong, because the truth is God determines what's right and wrong by his very essence, his, his very character. So we're replacing God as our criterion, as our standard, as our norm. We're replacing God's character with our feelings, our leanings. That's to become an enemy of the cross whose glory is in their shame. Now this is in context. Paul has said he has so much to boast about in the flesh and he considers it all to be rejected. And all he can glory in is in Christ. Well, this is the opposite. This is when you're pr promoting self and it's a shame to put anything next to Jesus Christ. Our only hope is in the Lord whose glory is in their shame. Those who throw noon test, those who set their minds or think have as a mental focus phroneo, those who set their minds epigeia on the things of the earth. That is the enemy of the cross. Now I want to make the category. I mentioned this before. I want to decide, well, is this an unbeliever or a believer? By the way, based on my experience with Christians, I think I'm kind of leaning towards these describing believers, but let's don't base it on an experience. Let's just read the text. He doesn't tell you whether they're believers. Well, their end is destruction. So they're going to the lake of fire. That's not necessarily what that means. It could be a wasted life and a bad outcome at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ. And all your works are just gone. You don't have anything to show for a life poorly lived because you didn't walk by the spirit and fulfill God's expectations for you. So what I'm trying to tell you is apply it to you. This could be you. And he's saying it so that it won't be us. I don't want to be this and I don't want you to be this. So you don't rest on your laurels. Well, I'm saved. I mean, I'm a believer. That's not what you're supposed to do with this verse. You're supposed to say, well, I don't want to be an enemy of the cross. So I'm not going to set my mind on earthly things. Have you ever gotten in the trap? There's so many ways to get trapped into this. When you're starting, when, when you're contemplating a big purchase, a house, something like that, when I'm shopping for a car, you know, I get old stuff. So I'm looking around the country for something old that, that, that'll make it and we'll drive it back from somewhere that doesn't rust. Usually, usually how we operate, it can become consuming the search and you could spend hours and then days with that, with, with something like just so, so benign, we're trying to make a big purchase here and it become your whole perspective and how petty of us, we who are citizens of heaven getting so focused on the things of this earth. Nothing wrong with buying a car. I'm sure there's nothing wrong with buying it where it doesn't rust and driving it back. You know, I'm sure that's fine. But it's not life. It's a detail of life and it needs to be put in its place. That's the, the problem is not the thing. It's the setting your mind on the thing. And this is a silly example, obviously, but I'm saying it. We're all subject. We're, we are all in, in danger of this unless we do something intentional with the word. And I mean, every day, an intentional disciplined approach to, and this is my life principle. Okay. 
an, intense, an intentional discipline approach to serving the Lord will call for some radical engagement with the word every single day. And I've joked with you in the past about a 15-minute time of reading. That's a joke. Multiply that by five or six, okay, if you're really going to spend some time with God and his word. But I'm not setting a time limit on the, some sort of legalistic standard for you to spend time in the word. But you do need to do it. And if 15 minutes is where you are and your appetite and I can't do more, it just my mind wanders, well, okay, take a break, do some burpees, get back to it as soon as you can. But um, this is the problem of rejection of God's word and neglect of God's word, those who set their minds on the things of earth. And I hope you're well at, at this point in your spiritual life. I hope you're well experienced in the difference between when you're thinking of the things above, when that's your general orientation of eternity and what's coming, and when you're not there, when you know when you're worried about the details of life. Let me apply this a little bit different way. We can get so wrapped up in the things of this world and the time, the uncertain turmoil we live in right now. We've never seen a bigger uh, uh, thing done with wealth in world history, probably in terms of the population and, and productivity than this COVID thing. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a stretch, but it's up there. It's one of the great energetic moves of like closing down like world economy that we've ever seen. And I still don't think we've seen the tsunami wave that comes after the earthquake. I still don't think we've seen the effect, but maybe I'm wrong. But the times in which we live are so chaotic. And everyone, everyone in your country, for example, says, thank God 2020 is almost over. You know, it's this, this universal sentiment. Like 2021, as soon as the calendar flips over, at least that bad luck year is over. Now it's all better. Bad news for you who think that's how it's going to work on January 1st. Like, I was really holding out for the first. Well, hey, it's going to be another day to serve the Lord like today. And what I'm saying is it's so easy to look at the, the news. I look at it constantly. It's so easy to get hung up on the uncertainty of our time and hear all the people that are out there punditing and conjecturing what's happening, what's going to happen. That nobody knows. And you could just totally get absorbed with uh, how are the next 40 years going to go in our country? And that's not really the way you need to be oriented. You need to deal with those things as they are details of life that are the landscape in which I'm going to serve God as I walk by the spirit, according to his word in the work that he's given me. As I walk by the spirit, according to his word in the work that he's given me to do. And so <clears throat> that's the problem uh, with the enemies of the cross. And that's really harsh language at, at the front part. They're enemies of the cross. But then we say, wow, it's just like everybody we know. It's, it's all of us half the time. They set their minds on earthly things. The Bible does this to us. You know, Jesus in Matthew 5 telling you the standard of the law. Don't kill your brother. True, don't murder. Exodus 20, but don't, don't hate your brother in your heart or you've killed him spiritually or in your heart. You've killed him in your own heart. So the sin of murder, you're guilty of that internally though you haven't carried it out physically and before God you're guilty 
of that internal mental attitude sin, just like you would be if you had done it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's as bad as doing it physically because of all the obvious reasons that you can imagine. But it does say, wow, I just thought of I was just basically a good boy. You know, what, what was going on in here didn't really matter. But it does matter to God. And so we're always served up with these. You think it's this way, but God's like, no, 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 it's, it's this way. I want every one of your thoughts. I want you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. God's saying, I want the spirit of God to walk for you to walk by in the power of the Holy Spirit every day of your life. I want you to be pleasing to me as your baseline orientation. And that is, as we said, as I began, radical. It's not how people think about the Christian life. I had to give you that context because I want to get to my key verse this morning in verse 20. For our citizenship actually exists in heaven from which also for a savior we're waiting eagerly the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's clean that up. I don't know if you're able to switch it from picture in picture me little to the, the text little, but the next slide is going to try to do text little uh, camera big. Let's look at this verse. Our citizenship actually exists in heaven. I translate it actually because I'm trying to account for Paul's choice of this word, huparko, to exist. There are three key words in the New Testament for being, to be. Amy, um, genomai, and huparko. And huparko is definitely the most, the rarer, the rarest of the three. Amy is your baseline word to be. Genomai, we kind of gloss it. We basically summarize this to become, but a lot of times it's just translated to be. And huparko, it means to be, and, and we, we are glossing it as to exist. And so when a writer makes an intentional move like this, when he says something intentional, and I think it's drawing attention to this concept. So I've said actually, because in English, I want to emphasize based on Paul's choice of the verb. Our citizenship actually exists in heaven. That is very applicable to Americans in the 20th, 21st century, 2020. One-fifth through with the 20th century. 20% complete with the 20th century, 21st century. It's good for us to recognize this. We have been united historically and nationally under the old glory all this time, since the patriots first bled the battlefields of Yorktown, Saratoga, since we first won our independence and kicked the British out so that we could have our own country. And then they came back and burned our capital, but we still kicked them out. And you had New Orleans and that horrible, horrible uh, rapscallion patriot, Andrew Jackson, Colonel Jackson. We have our history and, and it's in our hearts, hallowed and beloved and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, very recent. You're sitting in a 200-year-old building, the footings of which were laid in 1812, the year that they burned our capital. The British marched on our capital and burned it to the ground. Just the other day. And... 
I want to challenge you that that's a valuable thing to engage in, to believe in, to hold fast and, and pay attention to. But it's not our faith. It isn't our hope. It isn't our destiny. It really isn't. And we have a destiny and it is eternal and we're supposed to be looking up and out at that destiny as we make decisions now regarding these temporal factors. Our citizenship, Palatuma, actually exists in heaven from which also we are waiting eagerly for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What I am doing in my life right now, as I'm looking at history, and I've been doing this since I was a, a lieutenant in the army. Ever since I first, as a young, no time in grade captain, went to Iraq and, and got some good training in Bible study methods and in Mesopotamia. When I first did this, um, I, when I, when I was, for years, I've been trying to connect my historic setting as an American nationally with my faith as a Christian, which is an international movement. And here's how I think you have to do it. Every time you think of your country, you should pray for it because God does set us up in countries. That's the, the lesson of Genesis 11. The nation is a thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a divine institution. But we're not a theocracy. We've never been a theocracy. We never had God as our king. God is our God. And we have, we have a, you know what our government is. Now, some will say, uh, some and some cults will say that our founding documents are inspired like the Bible. It's not, they're not. But they are, Little I inspired, I mean, the people writing them are bringing biblical norms and perspectives to bear on God being our creator and giving us our dignity as his image bearers. What I'm trying to tell you is the way I have understood, the way I think you and I must move from a focus on national concerns as our baseline is the same thing that Philippians need to do. They know they're Roman citizens, and that is the thing to be in the first century AD. Rome is a force in Paul's day for order, for stability, for flourishing, for prosperity, for the spread of technology. The Roman Empire is a force for the gospel to be broadcast throughout the Mediterranean world because of the order established and the technology uniting the Roman Empire but it's a means to an end. The end is what Paul is saying here. Hey, Roman citizens in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. And so what you have to do is every time that thought of patriotic zeal arises, you need to put it in its proper place, connecting your life to eternity and seeing your situation that God has sovereignly placed you in as an American, as a detail that is in service to whatever his mission for you is. That's the way I think we founded this country. They came here, 1620, they came here to New England because they wanted to serve God according to his word. <clears throat> 200 years later, a, an Anglican priest is really struggling with that same system that the pilgrims left, the English church. 
struggling mightily against it as an Anglican priest with his conscience because he's aware, John Nelson Darby in, in Ireland is aware that um, because of a lack of credentials with the Anglican church, if Paul and Peter and James or even Jesus came to preach in Great Britain, they would be outlaws. They weren't credentialed according to the Church of England. We came here because we wanted to serve God. That's always been the thing. The flag should not be in competition with that. It's in service to that. So what I'm trying to tell you is your Americanism is a temporal thing. It's going away. America is not eternal. But your citizenship in heaven is, and your temporal situation has you in America. So put it in its place. That doesn't diminish your patriotism. It leverages it. It should. Our citizenship actually exists in heaven from which we also are waiting eagerly for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What this means is that the most ardent constitutionalist who doesn't know God versus someone from another country who has no idea about our constitution bill of rights, but believes in Christ and is waiting eagerly for his savior. One of those is your brother and the other isn't. One of those is a target for the gospel for you two brothers to disciple, to make a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You see what I'm saying? This is a totally different way of thinking. It's radical. And it, it, it now don't go overboard and say, oh, we're in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom in terms of the historical expression of the kingdom. When Paul says he's transferred you from the, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in Colossians chapter one, verses 13 and 14. When Paul says this about you, he's talking about your identity, your position. He's not talking about Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, setting up world peace where they beat their plowshares into pruning hooks and their, their swords into, uh, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He's not talking about the, the kingdom being on earth. He's talking about you being a citizen of it. You're in a bet. You're waiting for this coming kingdom. And this is the way to think about your life. Well, that means that we're kind of like pilgrims. I mean, it means we're on in transition. It means we're on a, on a journey that we're not there yet. I mean, I want to settle down. I'd like to settle down, pour a foundation, lay out some stakes, uh, you know, have a life. And that's exactly what we're saying. This is not your, this circumstance is not your, your, your destination. It is all baggage on the road to our destination. And that's, that's a totally different way of thinking about it. It also will free you from anxiety about what we are seeing in our population, what's being thrown away. This government is not for people. This government does not work for people who are not personally committed to integrity. The, the government doesn't work. It never will. No government ever has. But this government doesn't work for people that that'll cheat on an election it doesn't work. And remember the word statesman, the statesmen are the people that, that are not trying to make money for themselves or glorify themselves, but they're making decisions based on the needs of the country on the, of the, of the, of the electorate, that that's what the politicians are supposed to be. They're supposed to be statesmen, stateswomen. They're supposed to be doing things based on principle and not because lobbyists pay them and they're all on the take and every 
government center in our country is the, the hotbed of corruption in that area. Austin, Texas, that's the sinkhole in Texas. Uh, uh, Washington, D.C., one of the most corrupt cities. Just look at the crime in Washington, D.C., one of the most corrupt places in all the world. Looking at the reality of what a good system it's not the it's not an inspired system, but it's a good system to restrain people's lusts and govern while maximizing freedom for the individual. Looking at how that will be corrupted and destroyed, it's nothing new. It's Habakkuk chapter one. God, they're taking your perfect law and they're perverting it so that the poor are oppressed and the wicked are exalted. How long are you going to let this go? See, God had given them a perfect system and they messed it up. We have an imperfect system and we can't maintain it. What am I saying? I'm saying, well, put it in perspective. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we are waiting eagerly for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's your role? You're supposed to make disciples. We'll make disciples here in freedom. And then we'll make disciples in prison. When they, they say, don't make any more disciples. We'll say, okay, we're going to make disciples and we'll just, and we'll do it in whatever circumstance we have to. Does this mean we never fight? No. Absolutely not. Sometimes you have to fight. We can go to the Bible on when that is and how that is. But it is certainly not something we ever want to do. It is something we never want to do. Why? Because it's awful. Because your brothers and sisters die. Because famine follows war. And not just famine, but pestilence. Horrible disease because of a lack of services. The young men yak, yak, yakking about civil war in our country right now are clueless. A lot of them about what that would mean. It's, you know, it's right, way worse than the Great Depression. We're talking about millions of people dying just because of lack of resources. We're talking today, the other day about the trucks. You know, I'm, I'm Chevy Chase driving under trucks on the highway with Samuel the other day. Some of you don't get that reference anyway, but, uh, but I'm weaving, you know, I'm not weaving, but I'm just trying to survive with all the 18 wheelers. And the comment was ah, too many of those. This road has too many 18 wheelers. I'm like, I know, but everything you ever got in any store, any retail thing was, was brought there by a truck. So the reason that truck is there is because you were on our way to Best Buy or whatever. That's, you know, welcome to the joy of the, the last vestige of, of prosperity. Enjoy it. It's going away. Right? When the trucks don't run, we're going to be farming. <laughs> if we're not already farming, we're too late. I'm too late. Nevertheless, these concerns about temporal security, which is really what the country's for, they're a detail. The focus needs to be our citizenship in heaven. Now, I can apply this to you as Americans in this time in which we live because of the circumstance of the Philippians. They are a Roman colony. I've told you this. They're a Roman colony. That doesn't mean like the British colonies. That's not what that means. What that means, well, they tried, the British tried to have this where the, 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 the colonials thought they were Englishmen and they believed in their English rights. And that's why they actually, why the, the war of American independence. Because you're violating law and we have law and we're English citizens with rights and you're violating our rights. That was the whole argument. Now, um, the, the Philippians are far removed from Rome. 
in Macedonia. It's on the same lake, it's on the same Mediterranean, but it's hundreds and thousands, well, hundreds of miles away. And Rome is the city-state, that's the city of Rome, but it's the Roman Empire that has made a lake of the Mediterranean. It's all covered by Rome. And so the real exalted position is to be a Roman, a citizen of the city of Rome. And you could buy your citizenship, you could do it through military, a military career, you could have it as a retirement, and then children born in your house, uh, if, you, if you served and then have enough to pay for your citizenship, your children could be born as citizens. It's a huge privilege that's a small percentage, it's an aristocratic privilege to actually be a Roman citizen in Rome. The thousands of people teeming the streets in Rome, most of them are not citizens. But you can see a few people walking around with a toga virilis that are. Now, Philippians, who are citizens of Philippi, Philippi, are actually Roman citizens. That's the nature of the honor extended to a Roman colony. Caesar at one point decreed the people of Philippi are citizens of Rome. So now you've got a subcategory of Roman citizen, comma, Philippian. And so at least we can say we're Romans. It's a great bragging right that they have. It's a privilege to be born in Philippi with, in a household that, that's part of the citizenry. You're, you're aristocracy. Now, when you take a rich man with that privilege like that and you say, that's not really much of a privilege. Your whole thing you're excited about, it's really nothing. When you tell someone that, he walks away with his head hanging low because he had much possessions. When you tell someone that your reason for boasting is not a boast, it's a distraction. The only real boast is in Jesus Christ and in the coming kingdom. When you, when you change that perspective, okay, it's hard for a rich man to come to grips with that because he has much possession. That's the rich young ruler with the Lord Jesus. Matt, read in Matthew 19. Well, Paul rips that encumbrance. It's tangling up their feet and hindering their, right, their run. He rips that right out from under them right here. And we need it too. Whatever claim we have, our American citizenship, it's the envy of the world. How do I know? Because people are trying their best to get it however they can. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we need that. We need that every day. And you need to remember that because this attitude sets you up to be able to do the work that God wants you to do. Now we ended the clause with a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him. And this is what he's going to do. You take the principle of the promise, well, that your identity in Christ. And so your citizenship in heaven. And then you connect that to your eternal destiny. And that rearranges the way you think about you. You know what else it does? It equips you to deal with one another. All the things that we do that, that amount to walls that separate us from one another. We're afraid of losing status. So we don't put ourselves out there. We're afraid of really being known. We don't think about it, but it's true. We're afraid someone will really know us and they'll see what, you know, we don't really compete or stack up. And so we'll be rejected. And, and all these insecurities that we have that we, we basically hide from connection with people because of our insecurities. 
well, this takes that away because there's nothing good in us except Jesus. And I have him completely, right? I'm not in myself. I'm nothing in Christ. I have everything. Don't you? Isn't that true for all of us? And so this, this establishes a basis for you to deal with one another and not be insecure and not be in competition. And when you see that creeping up, that's your flesh. It's your sinful nature. Don't let your God be your stomach or your stomach be your God. Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble estate so that it will become conformed to his glorious body. He's talking about your physical body. And your body is going to be conformed to his sinless, perfect human resurrection body forever and ever and ever. My favorite thought of late about the incarnation, it's Christmas time, it's celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God the Son taking on flesh of man. My favorite thought about this lately is that Jesus continues as God the Son and as the son of man, he continues in a resurrection body forever. The timeline of God, okay, is uh, there are arrows on either end. Like we learned early in math class, the arrows on either end means an infinite in that direction, infinite in that direction. From our perspective in time, God is infinite from eternity past, to eternity future. He has no beginning and no end. And that's the nature of God, the son. But there was a point on the continuum in which God the Son was born into the human race and took on a second nature, a human nature. And that's, that's a point. And this, by the way, this model of the, the, the line versus the ray, it doesn't perfectly communicate what's going on because we're talking about God's uh, existence, God's um, experience, and we don't have access to that, to his experience as he is we don't know what it's like to be him we never will but but here's the thing at a point within time that god is holding all things jesus god the son is holding all things together by his powerful word he enters the human race and there's a dot on that line 4 bc probably winter december january 5 or 4 bc that's the time frame in which he's born he's born and then continues on that same forever continuum of future that God is, that his divine nature has always had, but it now is in its humanity as well. He never stops being a human is what I'm trying to say. This is something people get confused. Well, back when Jesus was on earth, okay, you mean in, in the time of the incarnation? Well, you mean the first 30 something years of the incarnation? It's going to be 33 years. Why is it 33 years? Because he died in 33 AD. Yeah, but he was born in 4 BC. So I'll say 30 something years. The point is that when Jesus was born, he took on flesh and he never stops being the God man. The hypostatic union or the doctrine of the union of the two natures of Christ is an eternal thing. It never stops. He never stops being one of us. He never stops being one of us. And so we will be conformed to his glorious body in accordance with the operational power by which he's able also subject to himself all things.
In this statement is your security, beloved. If you're secure in anything else, anything else would be something less. I want to talk to you about security as we close. It's a long close, but you know we're we're setting up for final uh, our final um, what's the word descent, and we're going to land right at ten fifteen or so. But let's talk about what this how this applies. As I look around in my life, I notice safes, locks, and security systems everywhere. And I'm not just talking about when I try to go in and I push the door, but it's a pull door. That's not being locked out. That's me being stupid. All right. But everything is secured. How often do you pull on a door that's locked and you can't get in? So I did a little Googling on this topic of security. And, you know, it turns out that it's pretty much everything we do with our with our resources. We save up enough and then we use a huge chunk of what we've saved to secure the rest of it. According to one internet research uh, firm or internet, a research firm that's on the internet that, that looks at manufacturing in the United States, they said safe and vault manufacturing in the United States is only about a half a billion dollar industry, $478 million. And that's 42 businesses. And according to this research firm, 1600 people in the United States employed in the manufacture of safes um, and vaults. That doesn't seem like a lot of people. It's like if they get together, they probably all know each other. Um, uh, it doesn't account for foreign manufacturing. There's a huge Chinese influx of this, but in terms of the United States manufacturing, it's a half a billion dollar industry, safes and vaults. I think the, the little safes I've got there, we lock up the remote controls and electronics in the house. Those are all Chinese safes. All right. What about home security systems? That's a little bit bigger industry, a little bit bigger industry. $27 billion market in the United States. $27 billion spent in the, in the, in the having of home security systems, the whole, the whole industry. And that's almost 70,000 businesses in the United States as of July and 203,000 people employed in the United States just for home security systems. What about... Uh, when you're away from home, well, tweak, tweak, you got you to secure the car. Car alarm, horn, traffic control equipment, all part of this idea of security. $4 billion industry in the United States, 306 businesses, 11,000 employed people. So I, start, I kept thinking, like, you know, so much money is being spent on securing our stuff. And I, I didn't get into deadbolts, you know, schlage or whatever, however you say that, schlag and and. Uh, quick set and not that stuff like billions uh, everybody's house needs several what about your money securing your money how do you secure it how do you make sure that they don't keep quantitatively easing easing the value of your dollar away i'm sorry inflating the value of how do, how do you protect your money well some people think you put it in gold they try to protect their wealth. They hedge against inflation or something with or, or, or problems with the dollar. They'll put it in a portion of their their portfolio in gold. Almost all investment people will say, "Yeah, you should you should snuggle some away in something that'll hold value." And I think, from what I've heard and read, I'm not a financial obviously anything, but um, I think gold is kind of like a vault for for value. It, it doesn't necessarily 
Um, it's not, I, I wouldn't consider it necessarily an investment thing to do. I consider it a thing to hold on to. The, the old adage is uh, an ounce of gold will always buy a tailored suit. So it's a handmade suit. When, the, when an ounce of gold was a dollar or whatever, but, you know, that's, that was the, the price of a, of a handmade suit. Now today it's $1,800. But it'll always buy you. That's the idea is, is the, the actual value of the thing. In the times of financial uncertainty, people often try to secure some of their wealth by buying gold. And um, uh, let me see if I can share with you a chart real quick. Yeah. This is the five-year gold price in dollars um, from 2016 uh, late 2015 till the end of 2020. This is what gold has done. You see that? Have you watched this? Do y'all know about this? The, 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 the price of gold has been like, it, it got to a, a really strange high of over $2,000 an ounce. Now it's back down to $1,800 an ounce uh, as of when this was printed. But that's the, that's the story of gold in the last five years. You know what that story tells me? uncertainty people buy gold because they're insecure and the and the price of gold goes up because people are wanting to buy it and so i think markets are emotional i think a lot of times there won't be necessarily reasons behind the things people do with their with their investments but but there will be like a rumor or just a sentiment or something and so people will get upset and so um i think that that gold thing is is interesting uh trend on uh, our fears it indicates insecurity about the value of the dollar and you would also say if the gold is going more dollars by the same amount of gold then relativity works this way the gold hasn't changed its weight it hasn't changed its chemical properties physical properties gold is the gold the dollar has gone down the dollar has decreased in value is the that's the idea in terms of relative value and so we're locked. We're using gold like a vault to secure our, our money. What about military spending? Why do we have a military? Do you know why we have a military? Because we're, it's called security. It's our security forces. They're supposed to defend us from all enemies foreign, right? Primarily. And then we use law enforcement for the domestic problem generally. We don't want a standing army policing our, our populations. A big part of the founding is not to have an army that's, that's quartered in our homes and, and locking us down like a police state. But what about our military spending? Um, I found a leftist watchdog that was ready to give you some numbers, and, and uh, I, I didn't find a lot of right, right-leaning watchdogs. But um, you can look up the DOD budget for 2019. It's $687 billion dollars. $688 billion. That's pushing, you know, rounding up to a trillion dollars in annual defense spending. Remember that gold chart about the value of the dollar, though. But anyway, um, the leftist guys will say it's closer to $900 billion because they'll roll in law enforcement and judicial and all that. But let's just leave it at the DOD numbers of $700 billion to spend to keep our submarines in manufacture to keep the ones that are running functioning to do all the things that our military is doing to provide what yeah it's just securing us 
No, we're an imperialist power. I will prove to you we are not an imperialist power. You ready? Canada is its own country. We are not a hostile, adventuring, take over the nearest people. We're not Assyrians. We are not, historically, we are not that. Canada could not, Canada would not be a, a problem for our military. And we could just take that country and all its resources and make it part of the United States. Mexico, its own country, wouldn't be hard for us to take Mexico. We don't do that. We haven't done that. We give money to these places. We have a military that's presence in the world secures those places to exist. So let's cool it on saying we're this, this awful imperialist country. We've, we've, we actually have history. We know about imperialist countries. We know what's, what the big empire builders did. Nevertheless, our military secure us. Law enforcement is for, to protect us here. One, one liberal source proposed we spend 2% of our GDP on law enforcement, which would be something like $428 billion. But you can't find a way to add that up, so I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But that's, I'm not a fact checker of the Washington Post. Probably about four times more, three times more than we actually spend. Um, the Equal Justice Initiative, a bunch of liberals in, in Massachusetts, they said that we spend $63.2 billion on policing in our country. Our judicial or legal system, the whole court system with the, with the, you know, the judges, the lawyers, all that, $29, $29 billion annually. And corrections, that's the end of the process. You get your law and order episode. The police deal with the criminal. They bring them to court. The, the district attorney prosecutes, gets a conviction. They go to prison, right? The corrections, $80.7 billion in our country annually we're spending on corrections. What's that about? Well, ideally, I mean, the idea is that those people who have hurt, have assaulted or murdered or whatever, that, that we're trying to protect the population from violent people. That's the idea behind the cages. And the Bible doesn't present that method, by the way, of policing and, and incarceration. I don't like the cages personally, where you, um, you deny someone uh, the dignity of being God's image bearer. I think we can do a much more efficient way and much more locally, but um, I just read the Bible and stuff. But anyway, we're spending $81 billion every year on our prison system. That includes the internet signal in the cell for the prisoner and everything. But the reason for that is our security. All these things that we're spending all these gazillions, that's a technical theological term, gazillions of dollars on, is for our security. It's to protect us. And so you have to talk about healthcare. You have to address healthcare. According to the CDC, we spent $3.5 trillion in the United States on healthcare in 2017. $3.5 trillion for what? Not because we're modifying the machine to enhance it to be a better, more efficient machine. We're not adding sophisticated electronics and becoming cyborgs. What's that $3.5 trillion doing? It's trying to shore up and hedge up all the death and decay that's happening to all of us as we get older and in this fallen and broken world that's trying to kill us. It's a horrible thing, but the reason for healthcare, the whole thing, ever heard of insurance? It's protection, it's security of what? How many days can I get out of this life? 
By the way, that $3.5 trillion figure works out, according to the CDC, to $10,700 per person, per capita, spent on healthcare in 2017. Did you spend more on healthcare in 2017 than $10,000? There's a reason for that, and it has to do with socialized medicine. All right. Um, that is, I, I used to hear back in the, when they're talking about the socialized medicine thing, they talked about in 2008, the big platform, we're going to, we're going to take over the whole, the whole medical system. You can keep your doctor, but you can't. And, uh, when they did this, they were saying it's 10% of our economy. Remember that number? I remember it seemed like they were saying 10%. I, I could, maybe I'm misremembering that, but it's actually more like 20%. So 27, it is now 2017, 17.9 of the gross domestic product in the United States was spent on healthcare here domestically. All right. Why am I talking about this? You got a safe to protect your stuff. You got a home security system to protect your, your person so that no one can come in without telling you and kill you in your sleep. Or while you're away, the other function of your home security system to protect your stuff while you're gone or to keep someone from getting in there so that they get you when you get home, right? Home invasion. Oh, that's not going to happen. It happens. And that's why we have home security systems. Gold to secure your money is how people think military to secure our borders, to protect our people and our interests and our way of life, law enforcement to protect our persons and healthcare to protect our health, to, to keep us from doing this one thing that all these hedges are designed in this massive expenditure of monies in all of our households. These all come down to one thing we're trying to stop. It's very interesting. We're trying to stop loss. We are doing everything we can to stop losing our health so that we die earlier or we have a lower quality of life. So we spend all this money to have the very best and finest healthcare possible and available in all the world. No, 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 Canada. No, 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 England. Go try to get an MRI tomorrow in one of those countries. Or next Wednesday. You're not because that's how ration care works best in the world. But it's it, all you get is it gives you, it, it lets you continue as good as you are. We're, we're, tr we're trying to not lose our health. The military is designed to, to protect us, to provide a hedge against losing our way of life. Every fear in life is a fear of loss. And what I just described is kind of a cross-section of the adult concerns and affairs in your country, in your time in which you live as a citizen of the United States. And everything I just mentioned is the detail. None of it is the mission. Everything is a detail. And it's all designed to keep you from losing out on the things that themselves are details. What saves us though, what saves us is our hope. You want to talk about security? It's verse 21 of Philippians three, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, you need to know this, whether you think about it daily or not, you need to think about this daily. Jesus Christ has the power and has promised to transform you into the glorious body 
in conformity to his glorious resurrection body. It's your destiny. It's secured. You can't alarm system it. You can't gold hedge against inflation. You can't military protect it. This is settled because the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, has you. And so we really need to keep this perspective. We need to keep going back always to this. I hope you can see how Philippians 3 applies. Nothing wrong with an alarm system. I believe a 10% gold position is probably wise right now. That way you at least have 10%. (laughs) I would even uh, recommend a vault and an alarm system to secure said metals. Exercise as much as you can to keep, as, keep, keep the machine going as good as it can for as long as it can. Because all you have is this time in terms of, I mean, you've got to do these details. Join the military, serve the country, put your life on the line to protect your brothers and sisters. But those details, while they feel insecure, are irrelevant compared to this identity that my citizenship is in heaven and my resurrection is secured and I'm expecting it, I'm looking for it and I'm eagerly, in verse 20, waiting for the return of my Savior. Our Father, we thank you for the perspective you give us through your word. Thank you for eternal life because of your Son. Thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together as brothers and sisters in Christ looking for our Savior from heaven. Father, we're caught up in the details so often, and it's hard not to in a time of, uh, of conflict with the drums of war uh, sounding in the distance. We do pray for peace, but more importantly, Father, we, we pray for success in the work. Protect our missionaries overseas, especially the mussers. Help all those, all the saints, Father, on mission. And those saints that are not on mission, Father, help them find their way in the word to that wonderful summary that tells us how to connect it all together to be on mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.